waiting. Nobody likes waiting. As younger kids, there were times where waiting seemed incredibly painful. Long car rides. Are we there yet? The never-ending aisles of the grocery store. Have we gotten everything yet? Surely that must be the last item. And as you get older, there are more things that you have to wait for. I, I remember when I was younger, just so like I'm always waiting for the next big thing. I'm waiting to get to middle school. Okay, now I'm in middle school. I'm done with that. I'm now waiting to get to high school. I'm waiting, hopefully, for a boyfriend or a girlfriend. I'm waiting for better options to open up. Uh, you know, I, I remember waiting was something that when I was a high school teacher, students didn't do well. I used to be an algebra teacher. Uh, I used to have a ministry of death, now I have a ministry of life. And, and I would literally grade students' class period two. There would be period, uh, sorry, students would take a test in period two. They'd go to period three. They'd come check in with me on break. Mr. Petrus, have you graded our test yet? No. Who, who do you think I am? There's, there's hundreds of you. I can't, and I can barely read most of your handwriting. So we gotta, we gotta go through this. But people don't like to wait. Some of you are always, every day, waiting for college. And then you're going to be waiting for your career. And you're waiting for marriage. And then it's waiting for kids. And we're constantly waiting, having to, to hold off, looking forward to the next thing. We all have to wait, but we don't love waiting. Therefore, we try to do things to minimize how much waiting we have to do. So for example, how many of you have ever been to Costco? Costco people before. In Texas, do they have samples again at Costco? That's what freedom looks like, I guess. I just, L.A., Right? And you know that on a busy, you go to Costco on a Sunday afternoon and it's death. And so you play this game when you finally have all your cart full and you have everything you need. You're looking, which aisle is the shortest? And then you pick that aisle and you don't just pick it, but then you're the rest of the time looking. Like, how did I beat that guy? Okay, so guy, me and guy in red shirt, blue hat got in line at the same time. I want to win. I want to make sure that I picked it, right? Uh, McDonald's has, uh, you guys seen some McDonald's in, in, for Southern California, In-N-Out sometimes has two drive through lines. You try to pick the shortest and you're like, okay, well, I'm now racing the other car. I want to see if I won because I don't want to wait. Some of you on the way home today will not want to wait for lunch. So you'll bust out your Chick-fil-A app so your food is ready with no pickle, pepper jack cheese, and a Chick-fil-A sauce. And you're ready to go on the way home because we don't like waiting. Those who like to go to the mouse house, that is Disneyland. You pull out the app that shows the map. Why? Because you want to see how long the wait times are. Because you're measuring, is it really worth waiting for this particular ride? We don't like waiting, so we try to avoid it. But as Christians, we should wait. I want to challenge you on your perspective of waiting. Waiting is the normal attitude, the normal activity of the people of God in Scripture. Waiting is what God's people do. Eagerly anticipating, looking forward to what is coming next. Goes back to Genesis, uh, book of Genesis. Abraham waiting for a son. 
The book of, Israel, the book of Exodus, you have Israel waiting for deliverance. Israel later in the Old Testament, taking captive, waiting to be brought out of bondage and spending time waiting for the Messiah to come. And you have individuals in the scriptures in times of trial, waiting for God's deliverance, waiting for God to do what he has promised to do, though it is not clear yet when he's going to do it. Waiting is the normal habit of God's people. It was in the Old Testament, it is today. You see, as we've celebrated this week, Jesus came 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfectly righteous life, the life each of us should have lived. He then died on the cross, taking the punishment each of us should have had to take. He didn't just die, but he rose again, thus proving that his payment actually paid for our sins. He ascended to be with his father, and he has promised that he is coming back. And part of looking to Jesus means waiting, being eager for, expecting the return of Christ, which scripture tells us could happen at any time. Let me just rattle off a few verses for you. Philippians 4, 5, Paul simply says, the Lord is near. His return is imminent. 1 Corinthians 1, 7, Paul writing to the Corinthians says, you're not lacking any gift awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He ends that letter by saying, Maranatha, which means come, Lord, eagerly asking for Christ to come soon. Mark 13, 37, Jesus, when speaking about the end, speaking about his kingdom, warns his disciples, be on the alert. Do not be asleep. Matthew, he says, be, be like a, a bridesmaid getting ready for the, the, when the wedding party starts. You're there and ready to go. 1 Thessalonians 1.9, listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 1.9 describes conversion like this. They themselves report about us what kind of a reception we had with you. Here's conversion. How you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. You turned from these idols to God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead. That is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. First Thess 4, First Thess 5 both say, the return of Jesus that you're waiting for, comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another and build one another up with these words. Take your Bible, let's go to Revelation 22. Revelation 22, it's the very end. It's important that we, we think about this. It's important that we as Christians are looking forward to the return of Christ, that we're not so in love with this world that we'd be totally okay if Jesus wanted to hold off for 10 more years. Like, let me do like, you know, college and marriage and a couple of kids and then, well, then Jesus could come back. Now, our heart is we love Christ so much, we want him to come back now, today. I'd be totally good if this sermon ended short. Like, we could do it now. We could, we could do that. First Thessalonians 22, verse, verse 12 Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me to render to every man according to his work. Again, verse 20, He who bears witness to these these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said this, It ought to be a daily disappointment 
when our Lord does not come, instead of being, as I fear it is, a kind of foregone conclusion that he will not come just yet. Part of looking to Jesus is looking forward to his return. Knowing that today, or this week, or this month, this could be it. When Christ comes to begin the process of putting a bow on history, to begin the process of eventually establishing his millennial kingdom, his eternal kingdom, where he will reign forever. But who are we looking for? We say we're looking forward to, you're like, Josh, that's a terrible question. You just say we're, we're looking forward to Jesus. Yes, I know that, but I mean, but when you say that, what, what is he like? What about him are we looking forward to? Who is this Jesus that we're waiting to have him return? And for that, and how I want to end our session today, is I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, to consider the Christ whom we should wait for and eagerly anticipate his return daily. Let me say this as you go. Some of you have made great professions of faith this week. You've decided, I need to turn from sin radically. I need to have a a hand chop off, eye pluck out kind of mindset towards putting my sin to death. I have relationships to break off. I have unnecessary things to cast out. I have friends that I need to talk to about Jesus. And what you're going to find is though, this has been a great week where we can rejoice in those things. When you're going to go back, it is going to be hard. It's going to be hard because of your flesh. It's going to be hard because of your schedule. And part of why it's going to be hard is because friends, possibly family members, are not going to want you to love Christ. They're going to, why would you change your life plan for Jesus? Why would you cut out this thing that's neutral? Just be a normal person. And we know that in scripture, right? First, uh, First Timothy 3.12 says, everyone who desires to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And when we come to the book of Revelation, we need to understand that though we think about prophecies and image and death and waters turning to blood and it's, it's chaotic and it's glorious and it's more chaotic and there's trumpets and bowls and, and seals, not the animal, but the thing that would like seal up a scroll. There's all these things happening. Some people get mystified by the book of Revelation and think, wow, this is just some like crazy prophetic word. But we don't recognize that the beginning The book of Revelation is a letter. It's a letter to people. It's a letter that the Apostle John, sometime at the end of the first century, is writing to a persecuted church. Those who Jesus died and rose again some 60, 70 years earlier. And he promised he'd come back. And they're the enemies of the state. Some have died. Some will not be embraced by family or society. It's again the normal, we've been super blessed in our country. It's been the normal pattern of the people of God. And so they ask, is what we're doing right? Is this working? You know, we, we often uh, tell ourselves, if, you know, if it's something that's not, if it's, uh, if it's hard, it's worth doing. All, everything that's worth doing will come, will be difficult to do. We don't always believe that. These Christians didn't necessarily, and, and we don't either when life gets hard, when the world doesn't love us. And so the Apostle John writes, while in exile, while in a sense jailed for the faith, 
to these seven churches. Let's read, if you would, at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 4 to 7. John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from the one who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the might forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. Apostle John wants to give this persecuted church who's trying to fix their eyes on Jesus comfort to strengthen their faith, to not to not shrink back in the midst of persecution, to not align themselves with the world, which would be way easier to do, He's trying to encourage them, and he begins his letter with a Trinitarian greeting. The one who was and is and who is to come, well, that's, uh, that's a reference to God. That's a reference to his aseity, his always existence. That's a sort of God the Father. That's Exodus-type language we could talk about. But this is the Father, and, and when he says, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that is a reference to the Holy Spirit. Seven, there could be a number of completion. It could also be a reference that the Holy Spirit is working in all seven churches uh, where believers are. But where he spends most of his time is at looking at Christ, looking at this Jesus, this Jesus that we wait for. And student, as you go back, it's not just about saying, I want to finish the race well. It's waiting for what's after this life. Hopefully, the Lord would come back before we all die. And I want to end our camp strengthening, I'm praying, your faith by looking at Christ one more time and how he's described, not just while he was meek and mild, yeah, he died on the cross and rose again, but who is Jesus right now, according to the Apostle John? Here's who he is. Let's look at this together. Who is Jesus now? Could be your simple title, and we'll go through this outline together. Number one, who is Jesus according to verses five through seven? Jesus is the faithful witness. The faithful witness. Now, the word witness simply means one who testifies of truth. A one who commends what is right and stands firm to what he believes. And in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of Acts, Jesus tells the apostles, he tells his disciples, you will be my witnesses. That's not necessarily saying, you know, crazy evangelistic outreach, though that does definitely happen. It's just saying you are going to stand firm and testify the truth of who I am. You're going to tell people who God is, that God is a gracious God who sent his son to save sinners. And they do. They do testify him in the book of Acts, in Jerusalem, in Judea, and even Samaria to the ends of the earth. And as Christians, evangelism, some of you think, man, evangelism, I got to figure out some, some trendy formula. It's simply being a witness to what we know to be true. We just speak what we believe. It says here that Jesus is the faithful witness. The word witness in the Greek is the word martios. It's where we get the word martyr. It's people that were put to death, not for anything special other than saying, this is what's true about Jesus, and you won't get me to say anything different. 
Jesus is faithful. He's the opposite of what we see from Peter in leading up to the trial of Christ, who denies him three times. Now, don't worry about Peter, because by the end of the, his life, uh, tradition tells us that he chose to be crucified upside down because he was not worthy to be crucified in the same matter of Christ. Jesus is the faithful witness. Why is this in here? Because like I said, this is a time of high persecution. This is a time where following Jesus is not in vogue. It will cost you something. And there might be times for these believers, just like there's going to be a time for you in the next three weeks when you go back to school, to say the life would be easier if I just backed off a little bit on the Jesus stuff. If I was just a little less faithful, it would make my life easier. And John says, you need to be faithful because of the faithful witness of Christ who has gone before us, our example. We testify of him who has already done that which he calls us to do. And friends, isn't that good news? Isn't it good news to follow the advice of somebody who's experienced that which they're calling you to do? Like, uh, like, like I don't know, you've heard the expression, I, I don't take restaurant advice from a skinny person. You know, experience, you know, of what is actually good food. Uh, you don't take golf lessons from someone who's never played before. If you're going to hear about being faithful, uh, listen to the one who was faithful. As Austin preached last night, the one who was faithful to the end, testifying to the truth of God and dying on the cross for his people. And so as you go back in the world where it's going to be hard to follow Christ, we look to Jesus, who is the faithful witness, who calls us to that which he has already done. So we could say, my Lord has done this. He has done it in a far greater way. I will follow in his steps. And by the way, aren't you so glad that he did? Aren't you so glad that he is the faithful witness when we are so often faithless? Aren't you glad that we have a savior, not just an example? He is our example of what we should do. And he is the one who has rescued us when we don't do it well. He is the faithful witness. Number two, who is Jesus? He is the firstborn of the dead. The firstborn of the dead. That's weird language. That sounds like an oxymoron, right? Born of the dead. One's the beginning of the life. One's the end of life. What does that mean, firstborn of the dead? Well, it, you know, you're like, okay, well, does that mean he was the first to be resurrected? But that's not true. Uh, Lazarus was resurrected. There's others in the Old Testament that are brought back from the dead. Uh, Jesus apparently raises a little girl from the dead in Mark chapter five. So maybe it's that Jesus is the first to be resurrected and never die again. That's true. He is the first to be resurrected from the dead and never die again, but that's not what this means. Firstborn, more, uh, not just talking about order, though certainly associated with order, had to do with position, prominence, importance, so the firstborn would typically get the greatest inheritance in the family at that time. Some of you who are firstborn were like, I'm okay with keeping that tradition. We could, we could bring that one back. Some of you younger ones are like, what do you mean bring it back? It's already true. But anyway, firstborn means preeminent. Of those who've been resurrected from the dead, Jesus is the most important. He's the first in prominence. And he's also, you could say, the prototype. 
How do you know that if you remain faithful to God in this life, how do you know that losing your life here will give you life in the age to come? How do you know that if you reject the pleasures of this world, that when you die, you'll be embraced, welcomed into the kingdom and and, uh, enjoy the love of God forever? How do you know that? Because that's what's happened with Jesus. Because he died and he rose again and he was given the name above every name. He was exalted over the right hand of the Father. The Father celebrated, gave him glory for his goodness and those who follow in him will enjoy a resurrection like his. The hope of our resurrection is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. That's why in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul calls his resurrection the first fruits. His resurrection gives us the hope that our resurrection will come as well. What good news in a world that promises all things? What good news in a world that offers treasure and comfort what, if, we, uh, if we accept the world? What good news that is a world that sometimes threatens danger and even death to those who do not follow the system of this falling place. Friends, no matter what they do to us, our resurrection is as secure as him who sits at the right hand of the Father. Because he rose, you'll rise. That's not just optimism. It's rooted in Christ. Number three, who is Jesus? He is the ruler of the kings of earth. He is the ruler of the kings of earth. We live in a world with people do not, who do not honor the Lord, those who do not love Christ, and authorities who fully support their decision to follow their own godless passions. In fact, take your Bible, let's hold this here, and let's go to Psalm chapter 2. It was, it was referenced earlier this week. Let's read it together. Psalm chapter 2. Today, wickedness is celebrated. By the way, we say today, we shouldn't say that as if it's some golden age we've fallen off from in the past. Wickedness has always been celebrated. God has always been ignored and robbed of glory. His people, the truly righteous, mocked, harassed. History is filled with unrighteous governments who wage war against God and against his people. And that's what we find in Psalm chapter 2. It says, Why do the nations rage? And the peoples meditate on a vain thing. The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. I mean, the world just says, we want to be king. Uh, Genesis 11, Babel just happens over and over and over again. We don't need God. Let us make a name for ourselves. Yet God, it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord mocks them. You think you can resist me? You think you could wage war against me? I've established my king. Nothing's going to thwart my purposes. And so now you look at Revelation 1 again. And you see Jesus is the ruler of the kings of earth. Nothing that's happening in this world is happening outside the sovereign reign of Christ. He rules. 
We can trust that everything's happening according to his timing and according to his plan. Proverbs tells us that that God channels the hearts of kings. He directs them where to go. And we can take comfort as Christians, even as we sometimes look going, man, what is going on with decisions? It was far worse for these believers. And yet any wicked king rules on borrowed time. Their authority is but limited and they rule as long as he allows them to rule. Christ is the real king who will establish his kingdom. Some of you at your churches, you sing hymns. This is, this is my father's world. The hymn goes, this is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. Friends, the wicked authorities of this world are temporal authorities. Their time will come to an end. So let us trust him. Let us not act every November, every election season as if Jesus isn't the king of the rulers of the world. Let us not act as if he's not coming back to establish his kingdom. He reigns still. And we can, even when life seems so wrong, trust him. Four, who is Jesus? To him who loves us. Thinking back to high school, and I'm thinking of your stage of life, who are people that you love? Typically, it's people that you love are people who've earned your affections, people who you like a certain way they act, you like a certain way they look. I mean, it's, it's very shallow. That's why we made fun of Olivia Rodrigo last night, and we'll continue to do so, be hearers of the, or be doers, not just hearers. Um, but usually love is so much based on performance, right? And, and some of you, the reason you dress the way you do, the way they act you do, some of you right now, you don't listen to sermons because you feel like if I change the way I act, then it's gonna cost me. I, I need to put a certain face on. I, I, I am constantly trying to make sure people love me. So I'm gonna hide the bad things about me. I'm gonna minimize those things because if people really knew me as I am, they probably wouldn't love me. What's amazing is that Christ knows you better than anyone, better than yourself. And he loves us. He loves us. Not just in a covenantal promise kind of way, but an affectionate way. He cares deeply for his people. He sympathizes with his people. He knows you in your faults and he loves us anyway. John wants his people to know that they are loved by Christ. The scripture tells us he cares for us. He prays for us. He always does what's best for us. Student, Christ loves you. If you're in Christ, he loves you and he loves you as you are now. 
He doesn't love just like that conversion, mo- uh, the conversion moment version of you, nor does he love some future version of you, so that's why he put up, puts up with you now, but he, he loves you right now as you are, deeply because you're in him, because you belong to him. Romans 8 tells us nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. It also tells us nothing separates us from the love of Christ. How good it is to know that the ruler of all things loves for you, loves you personally. If you don't believe that, friends, he, he lays down his life, it says, for the sheep, because he loves his own. Number five, he loves us. Jesus is also the one who released us from our sins. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. How many of you have uh, read the book Pilgrim's Progress? Or maybe like a children's version of it? Okay, a good amount of you. It's an old book. It's a fictional book. It's an allegory of a young uh, man named Christian. Uh, He is a pilgrim uh, moving from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And part of why Christian needs to go to the celestial city is he has on his back his burden. The author John Bunyan is, is using that to illustrate the burden of sin. That each of us, when we start realizing who God is and we realize who we are, there is this weight of sin that we know we have to deal with. And this weight of sin that we have to deal with, sometimes we go, okay, well, maybe I need to go to church more. I need to pray more. I need to cuss a little less. I need to lust a little less. And we're just trying to find a way, like, how can I chip away this burden? And yet this burden, this guilt that you feel, which is a good thing from the Lord, cannot be removed through any effort. It cannot be worked off. But what does it say? It doesn't say that Christ gave us a path. So this isn't a workout plan. 12 weeks to lose your burden. That's not what Jesus offers. It says that he has released us from our sins. It's no longer attached to you. If you're in Christ, Colossians 2 says he's nailed it to the cross. Permanently paid for and done with. There is Romans 8, 1. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven in Christ. And how did he do that? He says he released us from our sins by his blood. By paying for our sins. And so the reason why God doesn't hold us accountable for our sins is because well, it's already been paid for. Right? There's no double jeopardy. The sentence has already been rendered. Innocent, 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 justified. You belong to Christ. You are forgiven in him now into eternity. What rest that gives. Because we not only live in a world of, of trials, we live in a world where we continue to be reminded of our own sinfulness. Some of you this week will say, How did I do that after going to camp? Why? Because we're always going to be sinners in need of grace. How good it is to know that Christ has released us. How can I know my sins are forgiven? How can I know? Because I've trusted in the promises of a son, God's son. I've seen the work of Jesus who promises to release those who turn to him. Friend, this is our last chance to say this to you all together. Wouldn't you like to be released from the burden of your sin? The old hymn goes, the vilest offender who truly believes, 
this moment from Jesus, a pardon receives. You can be forgiven even on the last day of camp if you turn to Christ. Number six, two more. Who is Jesus? He is the one who makes us a kingdom. Who makes us a kingdom. The world is constantly trying to press everybody into some sort of identity. Whether it be political, or gender identity, or sports, occupational. There's all sorts of identities. And in the book of Revelation, it's, it's talking about the end times where, well, the, the Antichrist, the corrupt system of the world, is going to press all people into an identity with him. You need to identify with me. You need to identify with the evil world system. And we see that in such trivial ways, right? Like from things like a Ukraine flag and your Twitter, which is fine. But, you know, here are pride flags we throw out during the month of June. Silence is violence, etc. They're always trying to push you into some sort of identity. And that's a small, uh, I think, uh, that's telling us of things to come. Uh, We now see, like, man, we've always thought, like, how is the whole world going to be forced into identifying with someone without buying or selling? or, Or otherwise they won't be able to buy or sell. Now we know. But here we see that we have a better identity. That he has made us a kingdom. He's made us to be priests to his God and Father. That we have been brought in, we've been given citizenship to a better nation, a better identity. We belong to the kingdom of God. He has brought us into that which will last forever. And what I love about this passage is it's not something you enlist in. So it's not just a box you can check, but it says, he has made us a kingdom. Student, when you go on campus, you might be a freshman or a senior. You might be a jock or a cheerleader. Uh, You might be an AP student or just doing basic classes. But your primary identity, even above your country, is that of the kingdom of God. It's the identity that's been given to you by Christ. And so we (laughs) we don't settle for cheaper identities. We don't settle for that which, uh, which won't last. We also understand, in this, by the way, part of what our role is. A kingdom of priests, that, that again is language from the Exodus, Exodus chapter 19. What are priests? Priests are representatives. So what a reminder, like, not only are we supposed to not identify with this world, but we're supposed to represent God to this world. As we belong in here, why do we share the gospel? Yes, out of compassion. Uh, Yes, out of love for the lost. But we share the good news because that's who we are. That's who God is. He loves making people part of his kingdom to tell those who aren't in yet to come on in. And so we share the good news because that's who we are. We don't join the world. We tell them to come join us because God calls all sinners to repent and follow him. Student, that's who we are. And we are that because of Jesus Jesus is a king who has brought us into his kingdom. Finally, number seven. Who is Jesus right now? As we look to Jesus, as we wait for Jesus, we're waiting for the faithful witness, but we're waiting for the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, him who loves us, who's released us from our sins by his blood, who has made us a kingdom. Seventh and finally, he is the one who is coming. He is the one who is coming Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Behold, he is coming with the clouds as a a reference to the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, we read how the ancient of days, God is going to give the kingdom over to the Son of Man. 
And the Son of Man is one from God who is going to reign forever and ever and ever. And his kingdom is not going to be one week at camp. His kingdom is not going to be spurts of uh, godliness on Sunday mornings and Wednesday night. But we will always be with the Lord. He is coming to reign and none will be able to stop him when he establishes his throne forever. First Thessalonians says we will be caught up when it talks about the rapture. Says, we will forever be with the Lord. He's not just coming, he's coming to get his people. Do you realize that? That the, the, the pattern of the Bible has always been that God rescues people out of something, but then he rescues them into something. And the into something is not just a place, it's with a person. It's with him. Book of Exodus, what happens? He delivers them out of Egypt so that he can lead them. And so they can eventually build a tabernacle so that he can dwell with them. Go, if you would, to Revelation chapter 21. Flip ahead, we'll come back to this real quick. Revelation 21 says this, uh, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. By the way, Jesus has been building a home for us, it says in John 14. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men. He will dwell among them. They shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. This is who our God is. He is coming. Back to chapter one, verse seven. He is coming and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Yes, amen. What does that mean? Well, it's interesting here because John is, is quoting from Zechariah chapter 12. Zechariah chapter 12, which we won't look there now, but he's, he's quoting from there. And it's, it's a prophecy about the nation of Israel realizing we have killed the Messiah and we will mourn over him. That's what Zechariah is talking about. But John takes that reality here and applies it globally. He says, in a sense, well, not in a sense, in reality, but in a sense, he's taking that passage, he's saying, in reality, every single nation is going to see the reign of Christ. Every single nation And in a way, all the nations that rejected him had a hand in piercing him. And some will mourn in repentance. Others will just mourn. Student, the coming of Christ is good news. Unless he's not your king. Unless your sins aren't forgiven. uh, unless, uh, Unless you don't belong to the kingdom. In fact, turn to John chapter 19. Let's go to John chapter 19. I, I want to make sure we get this because I don't know. Sometimes at camp, we get this idea that like, well, I break the rules, but nothing bad happens. And I turn in papers late for school and nothing bad ever happens. And my parents always say they're going to ground me and it never comes true. Friends, this threat will come true because just as God has promised to always forgive, he will judge those who do not repent. Chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse who... And he who sits on it is called faithful and true. We read about that earlier. And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. 
His eyes are a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself. And being clothed with a garment dipped in blood, his name is also called the Word of God. This is Jesus coming to make war. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, uh, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God, the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. He comes ready to battle those who have resisted him and those who have harmed his people. He is coming as a warning for those who don't know him. My friends, for us, think about that. Every time we've chosen Jesus and not this world, every time we've stayed faithful in the face of rejection, Jesus will not only vindicate us, but bring us home. He's coming. He's coming soon, let's not sleep. He's coming soon, let's not lose heart. He's coming soon, let's remain faithful. Long trips are hard. Long trips are difficult. Some of you have a very long trip home as we leave from camp. And I remember being younger, you know, two hour, a two-hour car ride seemed like a long time. At some point today, some of us that are driving back to Los Angeles are going to feel like, man, we've got to be getting close, right? And we'll look up and it'll say, now entering Arizona. And we'll be like, we're just never going to get there. It's awful. And there's all these waiting and you keep reminding yourself. But there's always that part in the car ride where you suddenly realize, wait a second, we're only 15 minutes out. Like, I, we're almost home. We can do this. Student, Christian, we're almost home. The time is near. Let us stay faithful. Let us keep remembering that home is right around the corner because Jesus is coming and home is with him. So let us be faithful. Let us take heart looking to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for answering our prayers that we sang last night to show us Christ. Thank you for helping us turn our eyes upon Jesus. Lord, we don't want camp to be about what a wonderful time we had together. We want to go home so encouraged and enthralled with Jesus who loves us. Help us keep our eyes fixed on him. Help us to have a heart that treasures him. May we run the race set before us with endurance, giving him all the glory for the rest of our lives. Thank you for your grace. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.